You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Hello and welcome back to episode 302 of the Freedom Pact podcast. This is the show for you if you want to better understand the world that you live in and how to thrive within it. Today on the show, I'm joined by Dr. Camilla Nord. Dr. Nord is a group leader at the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Nord's lab investigates the neural, cognitive and computational mechanisms underlying psychiatric illness. Camilla has recently published a brand new book entitled The Balanced Brain, which you can order now should you wish to. On the show today, Camilla and I discuss a wide range of topics such as can experiencing acute pain, such as an ice bath, which is very popular at the moment, can that make us happier? And does experiencing more pain, does that make us more sensitive to pleasure? Good dopamine versus bad dopamine? Are low expectations a secret to happiness? Role of the gut microbiome and the importance of diet in mental health? How social laughter has an opioid effect in the brain? And then we get pretty crazy with what we discuss next. We talk about things like the future of mental health treatment. I ask things like, when will we have a blood test for depression? Could we ever have a blood test for depression? What role does electroconvulsive therapy have in mental health treatment? When will gene editing be available to enhance mental health circuits? Things like positive anticipation. Before we delve into this, should you wish to watch the video, then you can head over to our YouTube channel, Freedom Pact, to see the video interview of this conversation instead. There is a link below that you can just click right into. And before we jump into this episode, this has been our best ever year by a mile across every metric from views to subscribers gained to plays on other platforms like TikTok and Instagram. So if you haven't already, do please consider subscribing to our podcast on both YouTube and the audio platforms, as I can promise you that we have some very exciting things coming up and some incredible guests all before the end of the year. So without any further ado, I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Camilla Nord. Camilla, welcome to the show. Great. I'm so happy to be here. So I want to start off with a quote of yours. Uh, from the book that I loved. Uh, you say positive mental health is not the absence of negative emotions. Feeling negative emotions is healthy and normal. I conceptualize mental health as the ability to experience negative emotions, but always eventually move back towards a relatively positive mental place, like homeostasis in the body, a return to equanimity. Uh, what a 
beautiful, beautiful um, written sentence. So perhaps, you know, let's start there. What is that role of, of you know, balance that you obviously talk about in your book, the balance brain, um, the broad balance of homeostasis in mental health? I wanted to get across the idea that the brain is a flexible organ, something that is responding to our ever-changing environments. And when I say environment, I mean our internal environment, like the state of the body, the immune system, as well as our external environment where we face frequent, constant challenges. And I think that my conception of mental health is different from the idea of kind of binary, poor or good mental health. It's this kind of constant updating, constant predicting of what will happen next on the basis of what we've learned has happened to us in the past. And I think that's really what I was getting at with the concept of the balanced brain. And I really like the kind of metaphor of homeostasis in the body because the body is not in a constant state at all. It's always dealing with changing temperatures, changing levels of glucose, changing immune uh, assaults. And so too is our mental health, dealing with constantly changing things. And, and that's what every brain is doing. I'm fascinated with this kind of concept of homeostasis, this kind of unconscious process uh, you know, the self-regulating mechanism that kind of kicks into action um, time and time again. So I'm kind of interested, perhaps just for kind of an example, if you could perhaps give us of just like when uh, our brain or our body goes one way, could you perhaps think of an example that kind of highlights the homeostatic process? Like we get the flu, we get a temperature. Um, I'm curious if there are kind of like any kind of mental health examples that you have with that. So there, there are many, but one is even in the example you just gave me. So when we encounter immunological challenges, like a flu, um, we also often experience mental health changes. Lots of people report this. They feel a bit down or blue um, when they have a cold. And the reason for that is that there's a causal relationship between our inflammatory response and how we feel. So this is like this kind of intricate process where when we're asking ourselves, how am I feeling right now? One bit of information we're using to answer that question, in fact, is coming from our immune system or coming from our levels of inflammation in the body. Um, we know this because you can inject people with uh, an immunological challenge, like, for example, uh, a tetanus vaccine. And in a subset of people, there are profound changes in mood or in processes related to mental health, like processing emotion, processing rewards. So I'm curious, you know, uh, what is this kind of relationship between, you know, mental health, pain, pleasure? How does that kind of all tie in? One of the reasons I open the book with discussing pleasure and pain is, well, there are really two reasons. The first is that pleasure is the most intuitive thing that we think about when we think of the kind of ingredients of mental health. And so I think it's important to kind of tackle that. There is, of course, overlap between experience of pleasure and mental health, because in many mental health disorders, people report a lack of pleasure or sometimes a lack of anticipation of, of previously pleasurable things called anhedonia. 
Um, and I thought it was really important to kind of discuss how pleasure plays a role in positive mental health and how its absence might play a role in various mental health conditions. And then the sort of flip side of that, and the other reason I wanted to open with that discussion is because chronic pain has this huge comorbidity with mental health disorders. They co-occur in so many people. And there's an aspect of that that's intuitive. If you're in pain, that's terrible. And of course, your mental health would be worse. But there's an aspect that's less intuitive. For example, people with depression are more likely to experience chronic pain in the future. So there's a bi-directional relationship between chronic pain and poor mental health. And so to me, that says that there may be common factors predisposing someone to chronic pain and poor mental health. Um, and I, I've, I've given some examples of those factors, but I think it's really important to bear in mind, even when we're thinking about treating chronic pain, that there are brain level similarities between pain and depression and other mental health conditions that give us true insights into the nature of both of those conditions and maybe helps us treat them better. Yeah. And I, I find that relationship between pleasure and pain uh, so fascinating. And as you said, you know, there's there's this kind of uh, bi-directional um, effect going on there. And one of the things that I was kind of going through your book when I was uh, reading it, you know, you used the term uh, stress-induced analgesia, uh, which I found uh, fascinating. And I was kind of thinking about these kind of natural highs that some people uh, you know, some being the keyword here, find very pleasurable from things like cold water showers or cold baths or, um, you know, a, a heavy sort session at the gym or, um, you know, a hot sauna. And I guess for kind of most people, the idea of pain as a route to pleasure is kind of, I guess, antithetical. Um, but I'm kind of curious, you know, um, is it the case, because this was kind of what I was kind of inferring, that there are some painful experiences, as I kind of just mentioned a couple of days, like cold swimming, um, can these kind of have some psychological benefits, um, you know, that, that kind of come from experiencing that acute pain? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable inference to make, because we know that short-term acute stressors can cause opioid release, release of the brain chemicals most associated with pleasure. And so at least in the short term, it does seem that some sort of temporary, slightly stressful experiences might have a positive effect on our pleasure. And you know, just by pure coincidence, when I was writing that chapter and I was writing about pleasure and the, the section on um the section on cold water swimming, for example, I, I hadn't really read those rat experiments in years. And it occurred to me because as I was writing it, I have a friend who does lots of cold water swimming and she took me with her one really cold morning in March. And I thought to myself, this is absolutely terrible for the moment that I was in the water. And then this is absolutely euphoric for the moments afterwards. So I experienced, you know, in a very short term that opioid release that many people experience in the cases of stress-induced analgesia. How it was described to me was that kind of pleasure and pain are kind of like this seesaw. And if you tip the brain too far to the side of pleasure, that your brain then will have to kind of overcompensate by going further in the side of pain 
to bring the brain back to homeostasis. So in the case of um, if someone has a, a a very heavy night of drinking, they then have to go through the hangover the next day. Or if they, uh, you know, watch too much um, or, or too much of an addictive substance, they have to go through a kind of a withdrawal process to kind of self-regulate themselves. Uh, but it got me thinking when I was reading your book, if we kind of do go through this stress-induced analgesia, these things like these cold water swims and shout and et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, many people has become popular for many people, not all. Um, is it possible that it could make us more susceptible to pleasure? Could could our brains become more susceptible to pleasure by tipping the scales in the way of pain? I really don't know. I think one issue is that a lot of the research that's been done has been done, at least, you know, as I discuss in that chapter, um, the really robust research is all in animals. And we can't really figure out in an animal if somehow frequent cold water swimming is going to have longer term effects on the pleasurabilities of that animal. We only know the short-term data. And I think there are lots of people who would really hope it has these kind of long-term positive effects. Lots of people report that, lots of people who go cold water swimming and find it beneficial. Um, but I don't think we know that yet scientifically, but it is a really, it's a really exciting proposition that should be tested. And what about the other way? Would too much pleasure, um, would that kind of uh, desensitize our, our brain? That, this was one of the things that I was kind of wondering when I was when I was going through your book. What, what's the relationship there, I guess, between excess pleasures and um, kind of mental health? That's a really interesting idea. I, I don't. I wouldn't say that there is an excess of pleasure that would somehow dampen or worsen your mental health per se. I think the only example um, that I think you might be getting at is one of the main chemical systems supporting pleasure is the opioid system. And there is a way of sort of hijacking that opioid system via opioid drugs. And of course, there are lots of negative consequences of opioid drugs. One of the most interesting things is that withdrawal from drugs can itself propagate the cycle, not because opioids are that enjoyable, but because they just relieve a deficit that's following withdrawal. So that's a kind of negative self-enhancing cycle that, that many researchers think is one of the main um, kind of propagators of addiction. It doesn't make you start it, but it makes you continue. Um, use of opioid drugs. So I think that's one example, but it's not necessarily a naturalistic example. So is there evidence, for example, that like, if you laugh a lot, which is also um, mediated by by opioids in some contexts, is that going to have some kind of negative consequence? I don't think there's any data to support that. I wouldn't be worried about that. I love that. And if I perhaps could make a, a distinction there between rewards that come as a result of something with no prior effort um, versus rewards that come as a as a result of things with prior effort. So I was thinking in terms of the case of something like, uh, you know, cold water swimming. You have to kind of go through the hassle. You have to psych yourself up to go and jump in an ice bath or in a lake or in a cold shower. Or if you have uh, sex with a real partner, particularly if it's someone that you care about, as opposed to watching pornography and get a reward from it in which there's kind of no prior effort there. Or if you go to have fast food um, versus if you have to go through the effort of perhaps growing or cooking your own food from scratch, in kind of 
half of those examples, there's this kind of reward at the end of effort um, versus you just jump straight to the reward. And I'm curious, uh, you know, in modern modern times, people, you know, they use the, the terms uh, good dopamine versus bad dopamine experiences. Is there kind of any research, any empirical perhaps data on, you know, whether good, to, to use just simple terms, good dopamine versus bad dopamine, how that kind of can change the brain or have effects on mental health? So I think there isn't really such a thing as a good dopamine experience or a bad dopamine experience in that sense. Really, I'm not sure any of those things are necessarily dopamine experiences. So I'll start there. Dopamine is an amazing neurotransmitter, a chemical in the brain that has lots of different functions, but it's been slightly misunderstood. I think Mm. the the poor character of dopamine has been (laughs) slightly misunderstood by the public as being a kind of pleasure chemical. Um, when in fact, dopamine's role, which of which it has several, is not really in pleasure. The best description of, of the closest role for dopamine that I can think of is what I talk about in the learning chapter of the book, which is the role of dopamine in prediction error. So, I mean, I just think these results are phenomenally interesting, but it's the idea that dopamine tracks surprising rewards not just something good, not just something bad, but something that is unexpectedly good based on what we've learned about the world. So with that in mind, dopamine experiences are when you might be predicting something mediocre, but you have a much better experience than what you thought would happen. And that causes a prediction error, which causes a release of dopamine in certain areas of the brain. So that's, I think, the the kind of reward role of dopamine. Yeah, and perhaps let's jump into those prediction errors because this was a, a fascinating chapter. And uh, you know, you say this process of expectation, surprise, and learning is one of the fundamental ingredients of mental health. And it, it took me back to the uh, the American psychologist uh, Barry Schwartz. Uh, he said in his te- TED talk, "The secret to happiness is low expectations." Um, so I wonder, kind of, are there any good? Uh, empirical data that that suggests that, you know, having perhaps low expectations could be uh, positive for mental health? That's what we initially thought. So you might imagine that if dopamine tracks the size of this prediction error, then you would want to be a bit pessimistic and then be surprised all the time. But we now know that's not quite correct. What you want is to be a little bit more pessimistic than the reality, but not so much so that your brain just discounts it. So I'll give you an example. If you go around the world thinking, you know, everybody who smiles at me actually hates me and they're all just faking it, you're not really going to be surprised by slightly positive um, social interactions because you have such a strong negative belief that even those positive prediction errors, you're going to discount because you have such a strong negative expectation. We now know that actually the expectations themselves can be sort of self-reinforcing. And so in fact, the secret to happiness is to have slightly positive expectations that then get exceeded at times. And that really is where the prediction errors then get incorporated into the model of your world. They don't just get discounted as kind of... um, uh, irrelevant surprises, something that maybe just happened by accident. Right. So I take it that's not something that we can necessarily trick ourselves over, or can we? I'm not too sure. 
I think there are many routes into prediction errors. So there are some types of psychological therapy that um, various evidence would suggest helps change your prediction errors. Um, for example, if you are in a psychological therapy for social anxiety disorder and your therapist encourages you to sort of scale up your social interactions to surprise your expectations about what might happen in those interactions and over time learn that, say, social scenarios are a little bit more um, accessible than you thought they were. That's an example of using that prediction error, that learning process in a treatment context. Yeah, and and I, I've actually been thinking about this a lot. You know, I, I, I think that this may, may perhaps tie into this. Is that I had a conversation with with uh, Ellen Langer about misattributions, and uh, she was telling me about how that a long time ago she kind of um, uh, changed her vocabulary in such a way to avoid making serious misattributions about herself. So, for instance, if you say that I'm lazy, I could tell myself I'm insufficiently motivated. If you say that I'm gullible, I could tell myself that actually I'm just trusting. If you tell me that I'm uh, erratic, um, I could tell myself that I'm spontaneous um, and all these kind of like different ways. So does that kind of hint at perhaps a way in which we could perhaps go about maybe altering those prediction errors in some way? Yeah, I think one of the best things we can do for our mental health is to learn how to deal with negative events and negative feedback. And that's what you're giving the examples of right now, is ways of taking negative feedback and incorporating it perhaps in a more useful way. I don't think you should necessarily discount it because it might be useful. One of my lab's recent studies, just from uh, two months ago, we found that a common psychological therapy strategy, which is called cognitive distancing, it helps you kind of take a step back from your everyday um, negative and positive outcomes. And we combined this with a mathematical model in a big sample of people, almost a thousand people. And we found that that changes this type of prediction error learning. But the way that it changes it is actually by making people better at learning from negative feedback. So that was quite surprising to us. Um, but when we spoke with clinical psychologists about this finding, they were less surprised because they feel that what one of the main outcomes of therapy is to help people better engage with the many negative things that happen in our lives and to know when should we learn from it? When can we sort of have adaptive responses to feedback, not just kind of going, oh, that's terrible. I don't know what to do about it, but really kind of taking it on board and helping our future decisions based on negative feedback. And it's been a, a, a great thing that you know mental health has become uh you know so widely talked about now um I, you know and i was reading a paper of yours you know it starts off the paper mental health is the leading cause of disability uh cost the uk alone more than 119 billion um but i i think that there perhaps is a a, a worry uh, that i've had for a long time that that base negative emotions negative experiences people could construe them as uh, as a psychiatric illness, when actually, in fact, that could just be a natural um, part of of being alive. Um, kind of, have you thought about perhaps how we can kind of distinguish between the two? 
Yeah, I sh- I share your concern, and I I know that there are um, there is research to suggest that sometimes, although there are many positive outcomes of mental health awareness, for example, access to diagnosis for people who need them, access to treatments for people who need them, there may also be some less positive aspects. For example, leading people to over pathologize normal responses to distress, and I think it's quite important not to say that means every mental health disorder is somehow fine and normal and shouldn't be treated. I actually think it's very important to acknowledge that some people need treatment because it's really affecting their functioning. But that doesn't mean we need to call every negative experience, negative emotion, distress, a disorder. I don't think we do need to. I don't think it's helpful. I hope my book is useful for people who have a mental health condition and who have somewhere on the normal spectrum of mental health experience, because it really does talk about the kind of processes supporting mental health across these different environments. But I would still draw a distinction. And for me, it's about function. Is it affecting your job? Is it affecting your relationships, etc., between people with disorders and people without? And perhaps let's let's jump into a a very practical tool that I I enjoyed uh, towards the end of your book, where you talked about uh, change your body, change your mind. Uh, which I, I very much enjoyed because I think that there's a, a tendency for people if they're in a bad uh, kind of frame of mind to try to think themselves into a, a, a better frame of mind. Um, but, but uh, you know, as as you kind of write, and I, I've certainly seen this my, myself, that actually that perhaps if you change your physiological state, that can be a, a, an even more effective approach to then thinking yourself into a good frame of mind. So perhaps could we talk about that, you know, if you're in a bad mood or you know, you're going through a tough day about this kind of uh, maybe moving your body first. I, I absolutely agree. And I want to kind of underline the fact that I think for some people, this might be the right approach. So one of the main messages from my from my book is that I don't think there is or will be a silver bullet for everyone's mental health. I think everyone has various different contributors to their poor mental health, but also many roots out of it that are not identical to someone else's roots. So I absolutely agree with you that there may be someone for whom the best route out of a period of poor mental health involves making physiological changes to their body. And there might be other people for whom that's not helpful or even unhelpful. And just in terms, I suppose, of our, of our physiology, the last couple of years, I've heard more and more about the gut microbiome. Um, you know, this seems to have become very popular, very exciting uh, topic of research. What is that kind of link between, you know, our uh, our gut health, our mm-hmm. microbiome, and our mental health? So, I too am extremely excited by the world of the gut microbiome and its potential for telling us something about mental health, but the most kind of clear evidence at the moment all comes from animal studies where actually your microbial environment is really different as a rodent in a lab compared to a human in the real world. So for that reason, I think we should be a little bit cautious about extrapolating some of those findings to humans where the effects might not exist or might be much smaller. Having said that, I think we also need to be open to the possibility that gut health affects mental health via a slightly like more complicated route. So I think the gut-brain axis is fascinating and actually thinking about various aspects of gut health 
um, could be really helpful in thinking about mental health, but not in the simplistic, if you eat sauerkraut, your mental health might be better sense. I think a more kind of open model might involve different aspects of gut health and then our own perception of that gut health playing into our mental health. So I'll give you an example. IBS is very commonly co-occurring with things like anxiety disorders. And if your gut microbiome improves your gut health, which I think there's good evidence for, then if you're someone who has kind of co-occurring poor gut and mental health, you might find mental health improvements when your gut health improves. But I'm still sort of waiting for a kind of direct link. Um, in some senses, I hope there will be because I like kombucha and fermented food as much as the next person. But I think it's likely to be a bit more complicated, maybe a bit more subtle than in the animal studies that have been published so far. I was thinking about this the other day, and this could be a totally uh, nonsensical thought from me because I've never verbalized it before. But I was thinking about when it comes to diet, because we, we do a lot of stuff on health. And I think that there's kind of a natural tendency for people to believe that, you know, uh, uh, high fiber, um, you know, uh, very healthy diet is the kind of secret to perhaps eternal life. Um, I'm being hyperbolic, but but I think there are some people that do think this, and I think that kind of where I've come to with it from from 300 plus of these interviews is that there seems to be an asymmetrical risk to benefit when it comes to nutrition, and that is in the sense that you know if your diet and nutrition is a mess that can really, really ruin things very badly for you. But the benefits to getting them right, um, I'm not entirely sure that that is symmetrical to the risks of getting it wrong. Does that kind of make any sense? I wonder if you have any input to that thing that just came up. Yeah, I really like that way of explaining things. It's a little bit like, um, at the most basic sense, about nutrition. If you have a very specific nutritional deficiency, let's say anemia, it might have effects on your mental health, but that doesn't mean everybody should take iron to improve their mental health. It might only actually have an effect on people with that original deficit. So similarly, I think other aspects of nutrition can, when they go awry, contribute to poor mental health. But that doesn't mean that kind of supplementing that in the rest of the population would necessarily have a big benefit. And one of the things I think that your book does a great job of is uh, highlighting numerous different treatment approaches, numerous different methods that that people can kind of try. Uh, because was one of the messages that you wanted to get out when writing the book that, you know, if one approach doesn't work, uh, you know, it's kind of expected because this is seems to be kind of both an art and a science in treating um, mental health and uh, that there are a diverse array of of um, approaches of treatments out there because people seem to, you know, as you just you give a very clear example there about this kind of unique um, approach that kind of people can have to this. So was that kind of something that you wanted to to to, to get out there? Yeah, absolutely. I I feel that people can often sort of place all their hopes on a treatment, maybe a new treatment that they've read about in the media or that their friend has done and it's really worked. And then when it doesn't work for them, they just think, well, I guess I'm unfixable. But actually, no, it doesn't work because there are many routes to poor mental health in many different domains. And that also means there are many routes out. And I do hope that the way my book tackles the fact that all these different routes have a kind of common 
common mechanisms, common overlapping mechanisms in the brain means that even if you think, oh, well, you know, psychological therapy didn't work for me and I'm a bit reticent about anything biological, perhaps my book will make you think, actually, psychological therapy was a biological treatment. It affected me biologically in a way that didn't work for me, for my mental health, but maybe a different biological approach might work. Um, And so I hope that it might make people not only open to trying other treatments, but actually even the treatments they may have had misconceptions or biases against um, for other reasons. And before we kind of jump into, um, you know, the treatment options that you kind of uh, talk about at the end of the book, I'd love to kind of just tie off um, on just to to kind of put a bow on the pleasure pain. Um, And you, you talk in the book about Aristotle. Um, and for instance, I think that he, as you write about, that he conceptualized happiness as uh, pleasure and life satisfaction. But you add another layer to this, and you say that you know, in your view, that drive, or wanting, or motivation is a key kind of component there. So, so why is that drive or motivation? Why do you kind of see that as a key component in uh, in mental health? I think motivation gets neglected because there's a misconception that we all can have it if we want. But actually, that want is itself in question and is as different between people and changes according to our mental health state and also just between people and individual differences. So it's really interesting to me that in order to experience a predictioner, let's say, to experience anything good, we first need to have the motivation to go out and engage with something, perhaps something new, perhaps something scary. And this kind of fundamental process is the precursor for anything else positive that we might experience. If you want to go cold water swimming, if you want to go for a run, if you want to try psychological therapy, whatever it is, you need to start with motivation. And I think it's been somewhat neglected, but is actually really, really important for mental health. And there may be ways we can target motivation directly with some types of drugs or therapies, maybe before another intervention. In terms of pleasure, you know, if I give you the example, because I I read about it in your book, and I think it's super important, uh, certainly is to me, and that is kind of social relationships. and, And if you take social laughter, that is a, you know, is a hugely, I think, rewarding, pleasurable experience. Um, how would, for instance, something like social laughter or perhaps other pleasurable experiences that that people have, and there's a whole diverse array of them, how does that kind of link with things like learning, memory, motivation? Is there kind of links there? So what we know about social laughter, for example, is that it one of its mechanisms is via the opioid system. The reason we know that is because we can measure opioid activity in the brain after people are laughing with friends, and it has this very specific effect. It's even analgesic. It can make people do wall sits for longer, so it makes you a little bit resistant to a certain type of pain, which is so cool, so exciting. Um, We also know that we have these pleasure hotspots in the brain, tiny islands that are hyper-responsive to pleasure. And so I think this gives us some insight into the kind of architecture of positive experiences in the brain. 
But of course, those experiences don't just happen in isolation. They happen in the context of a world where we're expecting better or worse or surprising or less surprising things to happen. And so they get incorporated into our future predictions in the world via these learning processes. And then they build up into beliefs about the world and expectations. You paint in the book that there's this kind of... um... Uh, that a low at kind of a basic level, everybody has needs for things like warmth, for for kind of um, social connection, for uh, you know reproduction and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but outside of that, you know how people go about meeting, uh, you know their pleasure hotspots uh, seems to be very different. So as an example, you and I, we both hate mayonnaise, um, but to some people out there, they they love it. I mean, even the thought of it is highly. Uh, rewarding for them. So h- how is there so much um, diversity in terms of, you know, people's pleasures, people's preference for, for you know, pleasures when at the base level they seem to be the same, but how they meet them is so, so different? Yeah, isn't that interesting? So we have this kind of common architecture, but then the things in those buildings or the things those, those, those architectural structures are supporting can be totally individualized. And that's usually from a mix of our genetics and our experiences. But I think it really speaks to the fact that a reward for one person is not necessarily a reward for someone else. A punishment for one person is not necessarily a punishment for someone else. And so our beliefs about the world, they're all constructed by this learning of, about positive and negative things in the world. But in fact, what those ingredients are, the kind of very specific elements, might be totally personalized for you. When it comes to things like psychiatric illness, uh, that there seems to be uh, such a diversity of responses that that people can have to, for instance, treatment outcomes. Uh, you know, as you said, antidepressants, they don't always work. Uh, some people may have to experiment and go through uh you know, different medications, different treatment options before they find something that works for them. But that kind of hints to me as, you know, as kind of, uh, of course, you have the science of building the medications and using the diagnostic tools and, and checking people for, for instance, how much hope they have and the clinical diagnostic tools. But in comparison to a field, like if you take something like neurology, where I would imagine that a neurologist would be able to see very clearly if someone has had a stroke uh, on a brain scan, for instance, if you take someone that has depression or anxiety, I'm, I got to say to the best of my knowledge, I'm not sure that you could potentially um, see that on a brain scan. So do you think that we could ever have something like a blood test for something like depression or anxiety or another psychiatric illness? So, I think even at the moment, although you can see a stroke on a brain scan, a neurologist can see a stroke on a brain scan, they still don't know exactly what that stroke will do for that individual. So very mysteriously, people with very similar strokes have rather different outcomes. And the reason for that is because of individual differences in our brains. So it's kind of the same problem if you think about it. In a mental health disorder, you don't have a lesion like a stroke. Um, And at the moment, you don't have a diagnosable blood test. In my view, that is partially because we've been going about it a bit wrong. We've been trying to find a kind of biological marker 
for a disorder that we have characterized as humans, that we've said, oh, these cluster of symptoms seem to go together. It's like our best guess. But in fact, that may well not be where biology draws the lines. So what we need to do that is the closest to what you're describing is to find a mechanism or mechanisms causing particular psychological problems. So let's say, what are the mechanisms that are causing anhedonia, a lack of pleasure, lack of motivation for pleasurable things? And then what can we do to target those mechanisms, whether with drugs or therapy or something else? And that is, I think, the way that we'll be able to have a biological definition for mental health problems by via finding a better biological definition for them in the first place. And do you think that perhaps a, an objective test of something like depression, could you ever imagine that that actually does come out? Could you could you believe that, that it could? Yes. It's just that I don't think it will be for what we currently necessarily call depression. So two patients with depression can have a completely different constellation of symptoms, not even one overlapping symptoms. So chances are they may well have different biological mechanisms, and we need to better characterize those in order to better treat them. Wow. And just a, a something that I'm also interested that has kind of come onto my research, uh, has come onto my radar lately, is that um, I know, for instance, that uh, Sam Golden and his lab and other labs are looking at kind of wearable devices uh, that could be useful in terms of predicting whether someone could be sliding towards, um, you know, uh, a mental health um, downturn. And I think that from what my understanding was that it would measure things like the inflection of someone's voice uh, or how fast they get out of a chair, sleep quality, other things like that. Um, I, of course, I, I don't think that these things are kind of anywhere near being ready at the moment. But do you think that things like that could perhaps be uh, a useful tool in perhaps preventing things like mental illness? I do. I think it could be useful in two ways. It could be useful clinically to kind of add to a big database of maybe an individual person's susceptibility. So I've seen some data suggesting this could be particularly useful in bipolar disorder, where people might switch to a manic episode and want to be aware of that possibility for a switch. So I can see why that would be very useful in that instance. I also think it could be useful from an individual perspective to sort of know that perhaps you have these kind of signs of slipping into a period of poor mental health. The one thing I would say is that often people kind of know. So if you ask someone, do you feel that you might be on downturn? People might say yes. So I would like to see and um, wearables or other things that actually do better than someone's subjective report. What was your experience like taking psilocybin? <laughs> I had a great experience taking psilocybin, but I don't think that means everyone would. So my experience taking psilocybin is similar to my experience with exercise. I happen to really like exercise. It improved it improves my mental health regularly. It really works for me. But that doesn't mean that it would really work for everyone. In fact, there's data su to suggest that if you're already someone who exercises a lot, exercising more is associated with worse mental health. We don't really know why, but there's um, robust data to suggest that. And I think similarly, there's been lots of hype about psilocybin. And I guess 
my individual experience um, supports that hype, but my analysis of the data doesn't necessarily. I think there's actually a really mixed story when it comes to psilocybin, that for some people in some contexts, it can be a really effective treatment. But we need to be very cautious about the side effects, the types of conditions we're using psilocybin for, the ways we're analyzing that data, how we're recruiting patients, a whole gamut of things. And I, I personally would say that we are still way on the efficacy of psilocybin on a large scale, on a kind of would we want it on the National Health Service? I don't know yet. I would like bigger trials to find out. And I imagine because this is such a popular topic at the moment, I mean, people are very optimistic about it. I very rarely hear people saying anything bad about it. Does that then make it prone to things like placebo effects? Yeah, that's one of my big concerns with psilocybin research at the moment is that it's very difficult to account for the placebo effect because you know if you're on a hallucinogen. Um, and in fact, some of the older psychedelic research did a bit of a better job. They used things like amphetamines as a control condition. Now, if you were drug naive, you'd never taken either a psychedelic drug or an amphetamine. Honestly, being high is being high. So you may well not know that you were in the control condition. But unfortunately, much of the psilocybin research uses, say, very small doses that are undetectable as the control condition. And oftentimes people who sign up for the studies want to take psilocybin. So if anything, that amplifies the placebo effect because they really are hoping to recover with that drug. Having said that, the placebo effect's great. So I'm really, you know, happy if placebos are very useful for some people, but I'm less happy if that means we've kind of exaggerated the effect size of the drug. And I think we still need um, better data to understand exactly who it works, how well it works, when it works, and so on. I'd love to kind of ask you about this, this placebo effect, uh, because something I've been thinking about a lot lately is that stress, for instance, um, this is something that has been pretty widely demonized. And I think that, you know, second someone now feels stressed, they're rushing off to get massages um, and to try to avoid it. But in some of the literature that I've read on, for instance, stress, uh, that stress, acute stress, it can be immune boosting. Um, it can have a number of kind of positive effects. Um, and I, it got me kind of wondering, particularly when I was reading research by uh, people like Aliyah Crum, and she, she told a group of people that, stress was positive and that they would have all these immune boosting effects versus telling another group of people that stress was negative and that it would have a lot of harmful effects. And that in the group that she was telling people that like it's, it's a positive experience, you know, it's going to drive you on to achieve your goals and to do this task. Um, they seem to fare a lot better, um, not just, I think on task performance, but also kind of on, um, how that affected their own health. Um, so I'm just kind of curious, uh, you know, if you kind of have any thoughts about uh, how, I guess, how powerful then the human mind is on things like placebos and how powerful it can be in terms of um, kind of convincing ourselves that, you know, uh, these things are kind of effective for us. Uh, it was a badly worded question, but I hope you kind of got the essence of it. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And I think placebos have a profound effect on our mental health. 
and our physical health. Um, and it's actually incredibly compelling to look at the evidence for the placebo effect and even see something as intricate as biological specificity. So when you're expecting an antidepressant drug, the placebo effect looks a little bit like an antidepressant drug. When you're expecting pain relief, the placebo effect on the brain looks a little bit like pain relieving drugs. And even medications that we depend on, for example, opioid medications for pain relief, are themselves partially dependent on the placebo effect. If you give someone an opioid, but they think it's a placebo, it doesn't work as well. So that's that, to me, really underlines the importance of the placebo effect for effective treatments. It doesn't mean we should dismiss all treatments as placebos, whether antidepressants or, or pain medication. It means, I think, that we need to really figure out how to harness the placebo. If we know that our expectations can enhance the effects of a treatment, how can we use that clinically in an ethical way to improve the effectiveness of the treatments that already work? That is something that across the board, I've changed my mind upon and i really do believe that that has helped me um of course i've got no data to, to back it up but i really do believe that that telling myself that you know stress is positive has been a, a net positive for me that's a good example of actually a psychological therapy technique where you can kind of re recontextualize re-verbalize something for yourself and then it ends up being psychologically beneficial <laughs> yeah i i i really i really have come to believe it and you know whether it, until i see some compelling data that the kind of tells me that that you know acute stress is bad I, i'm gonna keep on believing it <laughs> um i would love to kind of ask you just about some kind of uh other things um and i guess kind of one of you know the the most interesting things i know you have a lot of uh, uh a lot of thoughts on for instance electroconvulsion therapy and you know you say that in the book that for uh severe depression this is more effective than any other treatment and this kind of got me thinking how does it actually work like what is the mechanism that this is working on i too was actually so surprised when I first learned that. I think it must have been yeah over over a decade ago now when I was training, and I learned that electroconvulsive therapy was the most effective treatment for very severe depression. And I thought to myself, how can that be? Everything I've ever learned has told me that not only is this treatment ineffective, it's also immoral. But when I kind of dove into the current data, I learned that actually we we currently use it for a small proportion of patients. It's very effective for people for whom, you know, they can't get out of bed, they're incredibly depressed, they have no kind of regular function in their life, and it can in some cases restore functioning um, in, in these most debilitating cases of depression. So I was really kind of surprised to learn that and somewhat depressed about the fact that actually in everyday life, this is not at all what people think about electroconvulsive therapy. There is kind of no worse reputation in psychiatry for a treatment than that treatment. Um, and there may be aspects of it that are deserved. I think, you know, the history of it is obviously horrific and nobody should get, you know, treatments the way that they were described and done decades ago. But, and then there's some of it that's kind of 
slightly justified. For example, accusations of kind of um, amnesic effects of the therapy. There is sometimes memory loss, um, but many patients would say it was worth it. And to me, that's what matters is kind of overall, was it worth it for the vast majority of people? Um, And the data seems to suggest yes. So as to how it works, I think there's a level on which we don't totally understand. So I'm not going to claim to be the first person to understand how it works. But I will tell you one really interesting thing about it, which relates to the memory problems that people get. So sometimes people accuse electroconvulsive therapy as causing brain damage. But there is actually evidence to suggest that if it's changing the brain, it's actually causing neurogenesis, birth of new brain cells. So we see that the most convincing evidence is in animal models. There's some less convincing evidence in terms of the volume, the size of the hippocampus um, in humans. So we don't know the cause. That's what we can do in humans. But I think there's still a lot of research to be done, and it's very difficult research, research that would be hard to get funding for, hard to get public support for, um, but very important to know. And with it, is it the case that, like, my brain is getting just, like, uh, buzzed and, like, my my neurochemical serotonin, dopamine, are they just, like, flying all over the place? Does it make my brain more plastic? Do we have kind of any idea about that? That's an interesting question. I think it I think there are likely effects on neuroplasticity, but I think most of the answers are unknown with respect to what you said. There's there's much better data on the neural effects of other treatments. Um, yeah. And it, would there potentially be a way in the future um, that there could be a way of simulating a, a similar kind of effect, I guess, without the actual way of going about it. I, I, I think someone like uh, Carl Dyseroth at Stanford has been working on, I think, uh, you know, channel opsins as a way to turn up various positive anticipation circuits, etc. Is is there a potential way that that could be another route in that way? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of his work in animals, really exciting. I'm not sure if you would necessarily describe like genetic modification as being less invasive than electroconvulsive therapy. I would probably suggest that the kind of like the most likely route forward from that type of brain stimulation are more targeted brain stimulation techniques, which can and uh, can and should be used in milder cases as well. Things like transcranial magnetic stimulation for depression, which is a really effective therapy, um, but much, much milder than something like electroconvulsive therapy. It feels like a sort of strong tapping. It doesn't induce seizures or anything like that. Um, And it's targeted at a specific region of the brain. And going forward, I think brain stimulation techniques, my lab and several others across the world are really working on improving these, figuring out which patients they work for, testing new types of techniques that might go deeper and be more precise. And that really is, you know, another aspect of stimulation that is very localized, very specific, um, that maybe is another light on on ECT. From all the research that you've done, uh, from writing this amazing book, uh, from, you know, from your journey, your life, if you wanted these guys to take away just one message from the book related to mental health, what would that message be? I hope the message that most people take away from this book 
is that there are many paths to poor mental health, but there are just as many paths out of it. And be open to trying things that you might have misconceptions about, because that might be your route to better mental health. I love it. Uh, I got two questions left for you. One of them is, tell these guys where they can connect with you, where they can check out the amazing work that you were doing, where they can get the book and everything else that you would love our audience to, to look at. Oh, you can buy the book from any bookseller from September 14th or pre-order it before that, The Balanced Brain, The Science of Mental Health. It's been so exciting to write it. And of course, if you want to get in touch with me, my email is online or I'm at Camilla L. Nord on Twitter. Um, thank you so much for such a great conversation. Amazing. Amazing. Before I let you go, the question that we sent off all of our podcasts with is what makes a life worth living? For me, positive surprises. Camilla, thank you so much for writing the book, for taking the time to share all, everything that you've learned with myself and with our audience. It has been a, a true pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Have a lovely evening.